and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this week by Amerigo and their UK distributor, Zebra. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound, and I'm taking care of things while Pippa is away this week. We're very much into the show season in our sport. County shows are underway and I've been out and about with my pony and yeah, it's very full on but really fun and I'm loving hearing about all the results from showing and across the disciplines. This week, our interview is with International Grand Prix dressage rider Michael Eilberg, who talks about his show jumping background and how it's helped forge his dressage career and where his true passion lies. I just love training horses. That's kind of where my inspiration comes from every day, going out there and, and seeing the horses come on. And the fact that now there are horses, uh, we've bred them. It's even more fulfilling. We'll be reviewing the five-star action from Lemoulin and I'll be talking to our news team about compromising safety in cross-country courses and euthanasia. Finally, vet Rick Farr from Farr and Percy Equine gives us a light-hearted look at the life of a veterinary surgeon and emergency call-outs. I've helped fish horses out of ditches, cattle grids and even swimming pools. There's not a single job like it. So there's plenty to get through today. Let's get going. Hello and welcome to this week's interview on the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Michael Eilberg. Michael is an international Grand Prix dressage rider and a world and European medalist who has competed on British championship teams on numerous occasions. With the wonderful mare Half Moon Delphi, Michael won team bronze at the 2013 Europeans and silver at the 2014 World Equestrian Games before taking team silver a year later at the Europeans on Marikov. He is also a double World Young Horse Champion, having taken the title twice with the wonderful mare Woodlander Farouche. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? Hi, how's it going? Yeah, very good. Thank you. So as we just touched on there, you were you were something of a British team stalwart for a number of years and very, very successful at the top level. Um, but actually, earlier this year, you rode at the Kiso CDI with some of your upcoming horses. And it was actually your first international show in almost four years. Is that right? Yeah, it has been a while. I mean, I think um, circumstances a little bit with COVID obviously have delayed mm. that all. But um yeah, I'd had also a little bit of a period, uh, I suppose, of downtime. We've uh, started a family and sort of rebooted a few of the, a little bit of the horsepower, started our sort of own breeding program. Um, so it's taken a few years for that to sort of come to come to light now. And uh, yeah, really excited about a couple of the horses. <laughs> yeah, you've actually got an awful lot of horses on the go at the moment. It seems. I know you've definitely been uh, been busy in that in that time, bringing on the next generation of um, well horses and uh, and humans as well, with uh, a couple of new uh, smaller members of your own family. We'll we'll talk about the horses first. I know that you've got you've got a few that are coming up to the higher levels now, and some who are competing in young horse classes, and well, all the way through, aren't they? Just tell us a bit about some of the exciting ones you have coming up. Yeah, so we so we've got quite a, a depth now from yeah young horses. As I say, we've been breeding so um, oh, I think it's sort of about ten years now. So a lot of the horses that we started breeding have come up to an age now where they're starting to do some serious stuff. I've got a um, a couple of horses at the high level now. A couple of them, uh, one of them's called uh, MSJ Dante, and the other one is uh, Figlio, and then I have uh, a horse called uh, Distinction. Um, yeah, some so they're sort of around like nine, ten years old now, and uh, pretty close now. They've done their small tour season, and they're training at Grand Prix. So I hope, fingers crossed, uh, maybe end of this year, next year, we might be uh, getting out of Grand Prix again. Oh, that's so exciting! It'd be brilliant to see you out at that very, very top top level again. Those those ones you you mentioned, I'm sure um, many of our many of our listeners might have seen seen their names on on result lists or start lists or on horse and hand Dante and Figlio. Just tell us a little bit about those two in particular and and what they're like as horses. Are they are they quite similar? Are they very different to each other? So yeah, they're, they're actually very different. They're sort of polar opposites of each other a little bit. Okay, interesting. Dante is is quite a big horse. Um, and, uh, he's, yeah, we've had him sort of since a, we've had him since a foal and he's, he, he, I have to say he's probably my favorite 
Um, <laughs> he's a real special horse. He's he's a very a little bit insecure and uh, and takes um takes uh, a lot of uh, in his younger years. He took a lot of time to sort of you know be confident in certain surroundings and and things like that. And I describe his journey. It's quite nice actually because when you mm. look sort of how he did the age classes and came up, he he sort of he he did the four years old. Um, I remember doing the semi-final and he ran out the arena with me. Oh my gosh, not ideal. Not ideal. And then as a five-year-old, he um, did quite well in the semi-finals and qualified for the final, but ended up last in the final because uh, he didn't halt or walk. <laughs> oh gosh. As a six-year-old, he, he won all the semi-finals and came fourth in the final. As a seven-year-old, he then won the final. So... It's uh, it's been a lovely sort of story with him. Sort of as he's gone through the years, he's got more and more confident, um, and we've developed a really good bond together. I think he really trusts me now, and he's uh, I just I just love riding him because he's one of those horses that he just always tries his best, you know. Mm, that I mean, that's one of the things you just you can't you can't really teach that, can you? You need a horse that just naturally wants to do it and wants to try, don't you? Yeah, hundred percent. He. You get those horses that some of them are always a little bit looking for the way out. Um, like I say, he's he's his own worst enemy in in that he'll try too hard sometimes. So as long as I can keep his his efforts under control, uh, he then does more than enough. Amazing. Been very fortunate to sat on some sit on some really good horses, and he gives me I would say one of the best feelings uh, that I've had. I always said when I had uh, Marikov, he was a, a lovely horse to ride. But he was incredibly spooky. Mm. There was always the problem with Marikov was the spookiness and a little bit the confirmation. Um, but to ride, he was such a lovely horse when he wasn't spooking. I, I really wish I could have a horse that rides like Marikov that wasn't spooky and has better confirmation and paces. And I, I think Dante could be that one. Oh, that's amazing. Um, it definitely sounds like he's got, yeah, the the full package in that respect. Once he um, hopefully does get up to, to Grand Prix level, where do you think his particular strengths will lie in terms of the movements? What is he particularly good at? He's He really does have, uh, you know, a lot of boxes ticked when it comes to to the marks that he has available to him. That's why I think I, I rate him so much is because... Mm -hmm. He has an enormous range of marks. I mean, you normally get horses that are either more um, talented for the collected work, therefore gain a lot of high marks in the Piaf Passage and the um, pirouettes and, and things like this. Um, and then you get other horses that are very talented in the flamboyant stuff, like your mm. extension uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and walking big and, and things like that. So um, he's amazing in when you actually look at the criteria that he can fulfill. He's got a walk that's unbelievable. I mean, he walks for nine or a ten. I mean, he really does walk amazing. Um, and then he he also has an extremely good high, high talent for things like the Piaf Passage, the pirouettes. So yeah, he he really is exciting. I think he's got uh, an enormous talent, and uh, if he keeps it cool, I, I think he's he's going to be one of the best. Yeah. Amazing. Well, we very much look forward to seeing more of him. Um, and tell us about about Figlio as well. You said they were they were pretty different. Yeah. So so Figlio, he's a bit smaller. He's uh, I'm I'm sort of no one. I think lots of people know me for riding big horses. So he's mm. actually a bit smaller for me. Um, but he keeps my hands full. He's a funny one. He's sort of laid back in himself, and I wouldn't call him a stressy horse at all. But he's uh, he he can be quite spooky sometimes in in different environments, but at sort of really random things. Um, okay, but he's uh, he's a horse that we've had since he was six, and um, he's 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 again extremely talented. He can do some really high classy work. The thing that I have to watch with him is he's got um really sort of like loose, uh, probably one of the most supple horses I've sat on. Um, what I've had to do with him is wait, be patient to wait for him to be strong enough to handle the collected stuff. Right, okay. As I've done the Piaf Passage with him and he's got stronger, uh, he really has come into a new level now. And yeah, he's had some fantastic results and uh, I'm really starting to see some top class stuff from him. So yeah, really excited. Amazing. And you mentioned uh, Distinction as well. And I think, is he is he up at, at PSG level now? He's just started, yeah. He's just okay. in his first few pre-St. George's at some of the Premier Leagues um, and, and had some super results, yeah. 
Fantastic. So, I mean, you've really got a whole a whole string of them coming up. And as we said, I'm sure you've uh, definitely not been resting on your laurels over the last few years. You've been obviously training them very, very hard. How how much do you miss riding at that very, very top level at sort of championships on teams? Does the excitement of bringing on younger horses make up for, for that for you? Is that what you're sort of all about? Or do you, you know, are you really quite keen to get back to that very, very top level? Um. No, actually, I'd probably say, I mean, it sounds silly to say I'm not keen. I'm sure there's a part of me that um, that d- does love that. Um, I, it's been actually quite funny for me because I suppose because I did a lot of it when I was younger and I had quite a lot of pressure, mm. um, you know, with horses like Farouche and, and Delphi. You know, it's always quite a high-pressured environment. So actually, I have really appreciated taking a little bit of a breather um, and I've really started... Uh, to enjoy the competitions again. I mean, this last year I've had, I've had a very different outlook uh, on it that, you know, most of the horses that I ride now are, for, are owned by, you know, my family. Okay. Um, and yeah, I've just really enjoyed it. Uh, I have to say, you know, and having my family there now and I, I've really, I've got the buzz back about the competitions because I definitely had a little moment where I was a little bit off, off the competing because uh, I just love training horses. That's kind of where my inspiration comes from every day going out there and and seeing the horses come on and the fact that now there are horses and uh, we've bred them and you know some of them most of them now um it's even more fulfilling so yeah for me the the real inspiration comes with actually training the horses but i have got the buzz back and i'm really happy to be riding these horses and uh, enjoying the shows at the moment Amazing. That's so good to hear. Um, and of course, it is very much a um, a family thing for you. For anyone who doesn't know, Mike's father is Ferdy Alberg, um, a team medalist himself, a renowned trainer. Uh, his sister Maria is also a top Grand Prix rider. How much do you all work together on a daily basis at home? At the moment, still, still a lot. I mean, working together, we're all very much a family unit. Amazing. Um, and of course, you actually started your, your riding career um, a few years ago now as a show jumper, didn't you? Uh, some people are probably aware of that, but others possibly not. Just tell us a little bit about that and how and why you made the switch to dressage in the first place. Yeah, it, it, it was um, it was a funny one, really, because if you'd asked me, I, I lose track of time, but I think it's probably 15 years ago now. Cool, mm. that's a lot. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I would have never, ever envisaged talking to you uh, now about my dressage career because uh, <laughs> I was show jumping all the way. Uh, had no <laughs> no desire to get in a dressage saddle whatsoever. <laughs> so, yeah, circumstances sort of changed a little bit. I show jumped until I was sort of 21, 22. Got up to I did some young rider level stuff and some sort of um, national level Grand Prix. And uh, yeah, these things sort of changed a little bit for me. I had um, a job that I was going to go and do in Sweden. So I sold all the horses that I was jumping at the time to ride as a, as a top rider for Go Jumping Yard. thought it was my break kind of thing because I'd done a little bit of work on different places. Uh, I'd worked for Tim Stockdale for a, a little bit and I'd worked for a guy in Germany. So then I thought this was sort of my break a little bit. And anyway, I, I sold the horses and got ready to go and then it fell through um for other details and stuff um that i realized i wasn't maybe going quite for the position that i thought i was so i decided not to go um and then of course i was at home and i had nothing to do my dad simultaneously had his rider that he had at the time um he left that sort of said to me you know well you're, you're home could you could you ride them for me so I said, yeah, okay, sure, but I'm putting my jumping saddle on. <laughs> Eventually he wore me down and got me in the dressage saddle. And then before I knew it, I was taking them to a show. And, and yeah, one thing led to another and uh, I sort of uh, got, got into it. It's quite an addictive um, sport, actually, once you get mm. into it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, you actually show jump to yeah like a decent level and and to you know obviously you were very young but it wasn't like you were still a teenager it wasn't like you were still a child when you made that switch you made that switch as an adult having already begun your jumping career how long did it take before you you sort of realized you were never going back to that yeah for quite some time i i, st- I sort of had it in my head even when i sort of knew it probably <laughs> and you know i just fell in love with some of the horses that i was working with 
I realized that um, I wasn't bad at what I was doing. Um, and I'd obviously picked up a fair bit along the way. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you know, obviously my family's driving force is the direction is in dressage. So I kind of figured that uh, if I had a chance of, of making it in any, in any of those disciplines, it would probably be be dressage more than anything else so i stuck with it and uh we had some amazing times yeah absolutely and do you feel as though your time show jumping has has sort of benefited you in any way have you is there any is there anything you sort of take from your um skills in jumping and, and brought into your dressage career that you think has have sort of helped you oh absolutely yeah no mm. i i really i think i i mean i teach a lot now these days and yeah well, I think, uh, especially when it comes to riding young horses, the biggest problem that I that I come across is is riders that are overhorsed with a young horse that's uh, you know a bit fresh and needs uh, a rider that can go with the flow. And I think show jumping, of course, creates that scenario where you can be a little bit more relaxed because you're used to, you know, a horse jumping over a jump is not dramatically different to a horse giving a little buck here and there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and not being too nervous about the horse moving its body underneath you and going forward and and stuff like that I, and and teaching you a bit balance along the way is um yeah i think it's vital um and of course it gives you another tool to to be able to give horses variety in their training as well you know yeah absolutely and i've i've been lucky enough to witness a few of your um sort of clinics and demos over the years and i've i i know that you do tend to use pole work and you do sort of really mix things up don't you when um when it comes to to training and i imagine that presumably is is something from your jumping years that you still want to use that yeah no i think it's it will never leave me i mean the uh, the arena at home is never completely free of show jumps uh, you okay. know it's always show jumps in there at some some stage uh and i find the polls i've always been very what's the word like um i always like my jumping exercises, you know, was always very interested in grid work and, and exercises that could help. And I've used, uh, I think, that brain in the dressage to help use poles and objects and, and things like that to help with um, with people's dressage riding and, and flat work and accuracy, athleticism. Mm. Amazing. It's, it's really interesting how much the disciplines do cross over when it comes to the training, isn't it? I think I think at the end of the day, any discipline, whether you're going to do, you know, show jumping, dressage or something as far as as raining or vaulting or, you know, anything that involves a horse, it basically needs horsemanship. And so um, I think that's really the biggest thing that I try to teach anybody coming to my place. I, I, that's what I say. If anybody wants to make it in this sort of um, in this sort of career, the biggest thing you have to take the time to learn is horsemanship. And, and that's not, that's not having a dressage lesson. That's not having a jumping lesson. That is spending time with horses and, and learning how to deal with situations and, and their behavior and yeah, how to look after them in the right way. Amazing. Of course. So, so important. Um, and I wanted to, to ask as well, of course, you and your wife, Maya, who's also a dressage rider, I should point out, um, have two small children now. How do you sort of juggle fatherhood, competing, training? How, how, how do you sort of manage? I guess it's very busy. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, obviously, Maya, my wife's done, uh, is, you know, made the biggest, uh, I would say, sacrifice in, in that sense that she's mm. uh, at the moment taking the time out to raise the kids and you know I, I support her as she supports me and uh, yeah it gives me the time to still do what we're doing with the horses but I have told her that as soon as the the kids are uh, you know growing up enough she's getting back in that saddle and she's doing what she was doing because she's uh, she's an amazing rider and I wouldn't want her to miss uh, her opportunity there. Amazing. Yeah, no, that would be it'd be lovely to see her back out and about. Do you think that the children will uh, will grow up to ride? Are they are they interested in uh, in horses? You know, I have no idea at the moment. I would say that <laughs> I think most young boys do. He's he's not he's more interested in his tractors at the moment. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Who knows? Uh, yeah, in on, in that direction, there's no pressure. I it's just see what they do and go go with the flow. You know. Amazing. Well, it'll be well lovely in uh, a few years' time if we do see your uh, your little ones out and about as well. But in the meantime, we are very excited to see you out competing on your lovely young horses. 
It's been fantastic to have you on the Horse and Hound podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on. And yeah, we'll, we'll be following your progress for the rest of the year, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Jen Redrup and today I'm joined by my horse and hound colleague Lucy Elder and we're going to talk about the Le Moulin five-star competition that happened last weekend in Germany. Lucy, it's an event I've been to a couple of times before. Uh, it was your first time there. What did you make of it? I loved it. <laughs> I completely, everything about it, the atmosphere, um, it's on, as you know, Gemma, like you said, you've been there a few times. It is the most beautiful part of the world with the, those it's like German forest and it's on Lüneburg Heath, really. So yeah, all the course goes through trails in this forest and just the whole energy of the event. I, I really didn't want to come home, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, and yeah, it was it was fantastic. And obviously having, you know, top sport was what really made it special. But yeah, it was very, it's very different to the other five stars. Obviously, I've been to Burley and Badminton mm. a huge amount of times, but very different to those, but really special in a different way. Definitely a five star as well. Yeah, I was going to say it's completely different. You know, over here, we've got sort of hills of Burley and open parkland and stuff. And yeah, it's quite sandy, sandy soil there, isn't it? I, one of the years I went, it actually, they had a flash thunderstorm the night before cross country and the whole place was flooded. And by the, by the afternoon, it was back to normal again. So, but yeah, it is, it is beautiful around there. Lucy, we had a, obviously a winner of the five star. Yeah. And it was a first five-star win for this person. Can you tell us a bit about them and how they got on? I can, yes. So Felix Vogue and Calero were the winners. And they, I mean, their performance stood out from from day, mm. from, you know, the first phase. Uh, they won on their dressage score of 29. They, this is an interesting horse as well. He's 14. He's quite experienced. He's been to the Olympics. He's been to the World Games. Um, but this, as you said, it was a real milestone win for both horse and rider. And for Switzerland as well, actually, who haven't mm. had a five-star. Their last five-star winner would have been over 70 years ago. So, And the first five-star winner of uh, from Switzerland at Le Moulin, too. So, yeah. yeah, lots of big milestones there. Really exciting horse. He's quite... I don't think he's the easiest. I think he was, Felix said that he was quite spooky when he first got him, and um, he can be he can be very laid back, but he can also be a bit of a princess as well. He said <laughs> so. Um, and the show jumping record coming into the last day, obviously, I was having a good look at that before before they jumped and things, and they have got a very good show jumping record, but it's not immaculate, so it wasn't okay. you know a case of this horse has always jumped clear. They were last to go, which made it really really exciting, and then for them to win it in the ring on Felix's thirty second birthday as well which made it even more oh. special so yeah a fantastic winner happy birthday Felix <laughs> it's a nice <laughs> present I'd like that as a present yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and then in second uh was the British rider Kirsty Chabert and it was definitely her best result and she she was riding classic and that's she's a lady on form at the moment because mm. I was putting Bramman the week before and she was third in the four star long there obviously on a different horse but yeah I can imagine she was she was over the moon she really was. And like you said, since badminton, yeah, that podium finish at Bramham with that horse, uh, not the horse she was riding here, she was riding Classic here. Um, but Classic and Kirsty won their first four star, actually Kirsty's first four star win um, in the short format at Mill Street as their preparation run. So she mm -hmm. really is on an absolute uh, golden run of form. And I was... I was so delighted for them. Yeah. Um, really exciting to have a Brit up at the top end of the podium and for it to be a British rider that, as you said, it, it is by far her biggest five-star results. Her last, mm. her second best result at five-star would be 20th. Uh, so that kind of puts into context what, what, the, what this means. And she was, she was quite emotional about it in the press conference and things and all that work for it yeah. to come down to that moment and it was just kind of finally sinking in but they they really stood out they particularly stood out in the jumping phases they really really shone across country and I thought it was quite interesting Kirsty said she was actually quite down on her clock um she said she's not the best timekeeper and she had to kick <laughs> on and they still came back quite comfortably inside the time and then they again the mare looked really super fresh on on Sunday and put in a really beautiful show jumping round she's quite a uh, 
Quite a quirky mare, Kirsty said. She's super talented, but the key to her has been uh, going for ice cream hacks through the new forest, which I thought oh. was really, really lovely bit of insight. <laughs> that sounds lovely. Um, and the, the, uh, it was just Kirsty and the winner, Felix, who, out of 36 starters that actually finished on their dressage scores. So like you say, strong jumping performances really coming to the fore. And now another mother and another mare that were as a mother of a child or children mm-hmm. and and a mare were finished third. And that was uh, New Zealand's Janelle Price and Fairy Dianimo, who's seventeen now and she's been around for a long time and she's won she's won at Lamoulin before, but she is proving that she's she can still fire, <laughs> you know? Um and yeah, finished finished third. Oh my goodness, I love this horse so much. She's so petite, she's so pretty, and you don't really get a sense of just how petite she is until you sort of stand next to her. And Janelle said that she wears pony tack, that's how little she is. And um, yeah, like you said, she's 17, she's a veteran, she knows her way around Lemoulin. She finished (laughs) second here uh, in 2015 and and won, of course, in 2018. Uh, Her crown slid, sadly, last, uh, last year when they had a fall across country, but it was firmly straightened again this year for that podium finish to, yeah to, so she's now got a full set first second and third um, yeah. from the moulin but she she looked fantastic the 17 like you said but you wouldn't have known it watching her and she looked to be loving every single moment yeah. <laughs> I think she was quite <laughs> Janelle said she was a little bit disappointed after the dressage on Friday because she knows what the mayor can do and she's the sort mm. of horse that you can get eights and nines and then threes and fours and so there were a few little mistakes there and on the final day she was thinking in the prize giving of what could have been but I mean you can't there's she certainly wasn't disappointed with a with a third um on her yeah, because she got 31.6 in the dressage and definitely the, she's a mare that's capable of breaking the 30 barrier. Yeah. Uh, she just, I watched it on the live stream. She looked like she was already and raring to go. <laughs> um, and yeah, just added 0.4 of a time penalty in the show jumping to that 31.6 dressage. So again, another really good jumping performance shining through. Now, at least there were three other Brits in the top 10. Can yeah. you give us a rundown of, of those, please? I can. And actually, these are stories that I really loved. There were lots of stories that I really loved at Lemoulin this week, particularly actually how different all the five-star, all the, the real business end of the leaderboard, how different all those horses are. And I think it mm. really shows that you haven't got one recipe for what makes a five-star horse. Anyway, as you said, coming back to the Brits. So Kylie Roddy and SRS Can Do finished sixth. They were cracking all week. Um, yeah. So their dressage of 31, Kylie actually said the horse felt better at Lemoulin than he did at Badminton, which wasn't quite reflected in the marks, but um, uh, it's just yeah, one of those things. Cross country, they were superstars. Uh, they came home inside the time and then on the last day, they just had one rail. So really standout performance for them. And what was quite interesting about them is that Kylie pulled up um, around the Vicarage Ditch line at Badminton because SRS Candu lost a shoe, lost a front shoe. Yeah. So she pulled him up there. They jumped really well until that point. Um, and then they went to Little Downham for another prep run and he lost a hind shoe that time. So they sat down with Farrier Greg Elliott and had a real think about how to, how to keep his shoes on, basically. And that was key really all the shoes stayed on they had a great time and they actually traveled down with fiona cashel and wsf carthago who were seventh so um, yeah and it was really lovely actually seeing kylie and fiona all week they were at the start and finish area they were cheering each other on there was a real sense of that what we love about eventing is a sport that, that support for each other and that was really really one of my one of my highlights actually to see um so fiona did her first five star at badminton this spring on a yeah. different horse so this horse wsf carthago was doing his first five star and again they had a really a dream time they got a dressage of 30.9 uh, then cross country they had a few time faults uh, i think he's quite strong he's quite a keen horse and then fiona's real strength is the show jumping and again they jumped clear with 0.8 of a time penalty and what was quite interesting actually was fiona said that she had watched 
Oliver Townend and Lucas, who were first to go because Oliver had two rides. Yeah. Um, and he, she saw how how quickly he was he was riding and she thought gosh that time must be tight which and she said if she hadn't watched that then she would probably have canned around and got you know a lot more time for so I thought that was a really interesting bit of insight and also leads yeah. quite nicely on to me talking about Oliver Townend and Lucas who uh, he said he was very much there on a fact-finding mission with that horse this week um, and anything else was was would have been a bonus so yeah so that was exciting to see that five-star first-timer horse um, scoring a top 10 finish um, yeah. Oliver also finished 12th with Dreamliner as well, who was um, who is a homebred by the Chamberlain family. Yeah, I'd say it's, I, you know, going back to Kylie and Fiona's rounds, like SRS Candy looks like he's going around on rails to me, like up yeah. to them pulling up at badminton. He looks, they've got such a posh partnership. They look super cool. And then Fiona, I think, does quite a good job with the Cathago horse. Uh, mm. He looks like he could be quite keen sometimes, mm-hmm. maybe or a bit goey. Yeah. And then, like you say, Lucas, the Oliver Townend horse that was eighth, he was produced up to four-star long level by Camilla Spears, Island's Camilla Spears. And I think Oliver got him sort of the second half of last year. So that's not a bad result off the back of having a horse yeah. for sh- such a short period of time. Lucy, there were some real bad luck stories in there as well. Bubby Upton, who's sort of a young, very, very talented right, British rider, uh, was the dressage leader on Cannavaro. They scored 24.9, but it, it suddenly didn't quite work out for them, did it? It didn't. That was Bubby's, I think it was Bubby's best test at four and five star. And as a combination, it was their, by far their best test. Yeah. Uh, so setting out across country in the lead, they had an awkward jump over 16A, which is rails on top of a mound. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that led to a, a sort of really big drop. And it was at that drop at 16B that Cannavaro just stumbled and fell on landing. Um, but... Both, they were both up on their feet quickly, and uh, yeah, my heart did break for her. Um, and Bubby actually, she dusted herself off, um, went on to ride two really classy cross country jumping clears on her rides in the four star, which is Jefferson 18 and Clever Louie later that afternoon. Which, um, yeah, she, as you said, she's only 23, she's a real up and coming rider, and yeah. um, their day will come, I'm certain of it. Yeah, and it was funny because. When I was watching it again, like I said, on the live stream from home, they weren't the only combination to actually fall at that drop. And as the day went on, it sort of became clear that you you needed your horse to sort of jump out from the drop because there was a bit of a lip on the immediate yeah. landing side of it. So, you know, it's just one of those things, like you say, their day will come. And now poor Tom McEwen, he's having a bit of a time of it at, at the moment with some international results not quite going his way. Probably... The, the one that people might have read about this weekend that you've reported on, Lucy, was his um, fall very late on in the course with the lovely grey Bob Chaplin, who had looked to have grown and grown and grown in confidence going around the course, and Tom had given a, mu- a fantastic ride. And then, yeah, it was, it was the last combination, was it? Sort of the second to last fence where, not his fault, <laughs> it didn't work out. Can you yeah. sort of explain a bit more about that? So at the approach to the corner at 29A, which is the combination close to home, and the real last question on Mm. on that course, um, a dog on an extendable lead ran out onto the track, which just popped the horse off his line slightly. And of course, at five star... That those lines are so tight and Bob is so honest that he and he loves what he does which is what Tom said to me afterwards that he said oh I can do it um, and, and it was a corner like a box corner yeah yeah and so he jumped into the middle of it and thank goodness Bob managed to stay on his feet and Tom Tom came off but yeah. Tom was alright but uh, it was it was gutting um, yeah to say the least and yeah I just want to explain as well why in those situations we go and speak to the riders about that because those are not interviews that we by any means that is not the interview I wanted to be doing with Tom I wanted to be speaking to him across the finish line about this exciting young horse and the wonderful round that they'd had yeah Uh, but obviously I think probably people saw on the live stream he 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 looked upset um yeah Tom that is and um so I yeah wanted to go and find out exactly what had happened um we'd been hearing rumors about a dog and things and yeah Tom explained and obviously his first thoughts are very much with his horse and Mm. 
yeah, he said to me, this is why I hate extendable leads. So it was it was gutting. Um, but thankfully, yeah. the horses are all right. Tom's all right. And yeah. I, yeah, like Bobby, I just, I want to see them have a, another good day. I want to be doing those winning interviews with them again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what was the general consensus from riders on the cross-country course? So it was, I spoke to Mike Etherington Smith um, about uh, beforehand as well. Um, and who he designs, was, he's the designer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I should have explained who he was there. <laughs> um, and he said it was broadly similar to uh, the 2021 course. They've got some exciting plans in the pipeline for 2023 and beyond. Uh, I couldn't get facts out of him, we tried, but um, <laughs> but I'm yeah, looking forward to seeing what those are. Um it was, yeah, it's kind of a thinking man's five star and it definitely is a five star track. As you said, it walks, it doesn't walk big in the way, in the sense of the dimensionally large fences you get at Badminton and Burley that you look at and think, whoa, don't get me wrong. These are not small fences. Um, yeah. yeah. I think as well, um, the, the trees and the, the wooded areas there, it can give you a false sense of how fast you're going, mm. which I think can then obviously influence people getting the time. So. Yeah, on the whole, I really enjoyed watching it from home. And obviously, there was another class running alongside it that you've already um, mentioned, Lucy, and that was the Mesmer Trophy, which is the four-star short class, and that acts as the German national championship, doesn't it? It does, yes. And there was a winner who probably... We wouldn't be surprised to hear who's the the winner of this class. Can you talk us through that, Liz? Yeah, I can. Um, Michael Young and Highlighter were the winners. I'm watching mm. Michael show jumping around on that horse on the last day. The angle he took to that first fence, my goodness. Um, mm. He is some class rider and that is an exciting horse. Bred in Ireland as well, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah. And they had a fence in hand, but they, they did not need it. And it was, I spoke to Michael afterwards and he said just how much it means to win that class. It is a huge deal in Germany, the, the German mm -hmm. championships. And uh, yeah, he was, it was, yeah, a really special moment, I think. And they were the only combination in that class from 51 starters to actually finish on the dressage score. So yeah, definitely a class combination. The horse finished second was Casino 80 under German Dirk Schrader. I I really enjoyed watching that horse. I thought it was beautiful. Um, and another really interesting competitor was Alina Dabowski, who finished sixth. And she is Andreas Dabowski's daughter. Obviously, Andreas has re represented Germany at the top level level for many, many years. It made me feel very old. <laughs> she was, yeah, she was sixth on Barbados 26. And then another horse I just want to quickly mention is Chintonic HS, which is a great name. Uh, and that was the ride of Will Coleman, who's a, um, an American rider. They led the dressage. And I think... If there's one for your notebooks, ladies and gentlemen, it is that horse. He is looks stunning and definitely one that I would be keeping an eye out on for the future. The Americans had a good week, actually. You know, fourth and fifth in the five star with Lauren Nicholson and Vermiculus yep. and Liz Halliday Sharp on Cooley Quicksilver. Yeah, a really strong week for the for the US riders. For sure. And yeah, I'm sure they're pretty excited as well with things like the World Championships coming up. Anyway, Liz, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great to hear about Lemulin um, and that you had a wonderful time. I'm sorry you had to come home. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you very much. For our news review this week, I'm joined by my colleague, Horse and Hound news editor, Eleanor Jones, who's going to be discussing cross-country courses in eventing and specifically how the industry can improve safety while not dumbing down the courses. So Eleanor, can you explain where this debate has stemmed from? Yeah, so this um, Ian Stark, who was obviously the course designer at Bramham the other week, uh, reflected on the cross-country day and, and sort of saying, you know, obviously there were some incidents there on the cross-country and he, he was talking about how the sport is vulnerable and, and questions need to be asked about what direction it's heading in and this is something that has been covered uh, a lot and not just in eventing or horse sport but, but all sports sort of keeping the balance between the integrity of the sport and horse and rider welfare and safety so that that's what sort of sparked it off and then we spoke to a couple of the top riders uh, who were at Bramham either riding or, or course walking mm -hmm. um, to see what they thought about it. 
which riders have reacted to this story? Are there any specific names in there? Yeah, so we spoke to, to Piggy March, who had already before badminton uh, in her horse and hound column spoken about the need for enough cross-country preparation for the big three-day events um, and she she had said at the time the need to be some some rider frighteners and she's saying it's not that you know riders want to be going at these uh, uh, horrible fences but it's about educating horses on the way up um, and she she said that you know possibly not all combinations are quite ready for the next level as they progress up the levels. And does the industry have any firm plans moving forward or is it still very much a, a work in progress? Um, it is It is obviously a work in progress and, and safety is, is always a, a top priority in eventing. We, we spoke to the FEI who said that the FEI said it is fully committed to, to mitigating and minimising risk. They collect and, and review data all the time and trends. Um, and they've also launched this horse forum index with support from Equi Ratings, which is aimed at improving safety by allowing riders to track their progress. Because a big theme that is, is that riders sort of do need to take responsibility and say sometimes, right, well, I may have qualified for the next level, but am I or is my horse really ready to take that step up? Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this uh, in the near future. And Eleanor, you've also been working on a story about euthanasia. Can you just tell us a little bit about this, please? Yeah, so this is obviously, you know, a huge topic and one that a lot of owners will, will have to contemplate. And this is specifically a, a review of end of life decision making models. Um, so th- there's a PhD student com- called Amelia Cameron of the University of Nottingham, who has been she was basically looking into what is available, looking into all the evidence and research in this area. And um, Professor Sarah Freeman, who was supervising the research, said that basically there isn't a lot about in terms of research and literature on shared decision making when it comes to putting a horse down and what that means is you know obviously a lot of people who have to make that decision can suffer with huge amounts of of worry about whether it's the right time the right decision and whereas if you've got shared decision making so you can speak to you know your vet maybe your farrier your trainer your yard owner and put together like a framework of making sure this is the decision that's in the horse's best interests and the aim is eventually to come up with one of these models that people can sort of sit down and work their way through and come out the other end maybe with no this horse it's not the right time for this horse but also maybe to say actually this is time to make the call for that horse and the aim is for it to be better for owners and horses. Mm -hmm. And what's the vet's viewpoint? Yeah, so we, we heard from the British Equine Veterinary Association President Hugh Griffiths, who who said he, he regularly tells clients that are trying you know, to, to decide when to make the call that this is the most difficult and the most important decision you'll ever make for your horse. Um, and he says, as highlighted in the report, the key elements are collaboration, communication, and he believes empathy as well. So he is saying that... Um, uh, we have got in this country some of the most caring vets in the world and, and we and our horses benefit from that. So he said, yeah, he supports the authors of this paper and he hopes there will be continued research in the area. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today, Eleanor, and thank you for those updates. Thank you. This week's Horse and Hound podcast is supported by Amerigo and their UK distributor Zebra. Amerigo highlights the importance of the rider's comfort and the horse's well-being. Design, quality materials and skillful Italian manufacture come together to create made-to-measure saddles and technically designed accessories that stand out for their functionality and elegance, providing an optimal situation for top performance in all equestrian disciplines, show jumping, dressage and eventing. So now we're going to hear from our vet. Over to you, Rick. Hi, my name's Rick. I'm one of the vets at Fire and Posey Equine, and we've just got a little podcast series here on what it's like to kind of be a vet, the day-to-day runnings that we kind of encounter, and some of those stories that uh, we definitely would be telling our kids or our grandkids of, of why not to be a vet. So um, uh, I'm on my own on this one, so um, what I'm going to do is just uh, go through a couple of things, uh, more on 
the things that they don't tell you about uni before I get into a story about quite a dramatic um, incident outside Cambridge that I managed to experience a few years ago. But um, I think the, the thing that uni never, ever prepares you for in this job is the fact that you think you're going to be a vet. Um, so you have that lovely James Herriot thing in the back of your head, thinking that you're just going to be out there, do loads of heroics, and it's all going to be fine. Um, it's far from that. If I could go back in time and tell myself, I'd probably get me to do a counselling degree first. I think talking to clients has been one of the biggest and steepest learning curves I think I've ever encountered in this profession. Um they don't prepare you for the fun that uh, you can have talking to clients and working up uh, with patients, but also the emotional roller coaster that you go through. You, you get unbelievably attached to some patients. And when you have to say goodbye to them or, or, or something doesn't go quite right, it really does affect you. I'm a Liverpool graduate. Um, and in our final year, we did something called communication skills where we had some actors coming in. I wish they'd done more with us. I've slowly learned and I'm still picking it up and every day is different. How to manage not only any emotional client or yourself, but um, the degree of loss as well. So when you do do euthanize a patient and how emotional that can be for a client, how emotional that can be for yourself. And I've had sometimes when literally you, you do your job, but you'll drive away and it really does hit you. And uni never, ever prepared me for any of that. It didn't even really come close. So um, it's been a bit of a baptism of fire because um, you get that from day one. But um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll sort of finish off with one of the stories that um, I encountered while I was working at, um, at Cambridge. We, it's that kind of thing that it, it could only happen to a vet. So normally when you're called out to an emergency, uh, you just get in your car, off you go, you attend, that's absolutely fine. However, sometimes, and it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally they come through every couple of months is you get a call from the police or the fire brigade. Um, and this was one particular instance where luckily I was in the office at the time, get a call from the police um, saying we need a vet out fairly quickly on one of the motorways just outside Cambridge. Unfortunately, a trailer had overturned, unhitched itself from a Land Rover and got itself wedged up against the central reservation with two horses inside it. Bearing in mind, this was probably only, what, a quarter of a mile, half a mile away from where the office was. Should have taken less than five minutes to get there. However, whenever you have an accident on a motorway, everyone knows you get tailbacks. When the police call you and say, right, can you get out to this instant? Yep, not a problem. I'm hopping in my car. So there you are. You, you grab your keys. Your heart's pounding. Crikey, yeah, you're going to have a lot to do. I've got everything in the car, right? What else do I need to be thinking about? So you're driving along. I pull out of the drive. I approach the motorway. Stop. Long stream of traffic. I'm going absolutely nowhere. Five minutes comes past. Ten minutes comes past. The phone goes off again. It's the police. Oh, um, where are you? Well, I'm sat on the slip road in traffic. Uh, well, push yourself through we need you here now well i don't know about any any one of you when you're stuck in traffic the thought of pushing yourself through you're going to a not only get a lot of looks b you don't have any lights on your car we have no authority with regards to that um but you know you've got to get there so actually the police were really good they said okay we're going to send an officer with a car we'll come and collect you thinking brilliant okay not a problem officers pull up probably about after another five ten minutes and uh Officer gets out of the car and says, right, I'm going to drive. He steps into the driver's seat in the marked car and everything goes in front of us. And that's parting uh, all of the traffic down the motorway. We're sat behind it just in a completely normal run-of-the-mill, it's kind of like blue car. Obviously, people are getting pretty peed off thinking that I'm following and I'm driving a police car. We've had people pull out on us and the language that came out of those officers' mouths out the window trying to get us there. But it's slightly colourful to say uh, to say one thing. Anyway, we, we, we get to um, the actual incident. Two horses, yes. Glad to tell you that both those horses were absolutely fine. Um, they were on their sides and actually we... Uh, 
it was a bit of a, a, a learning curve for me. It's climbing into the jockey door upside down, um, anesthetizing two horses that are laid on their side, you know, within a trailer and, uh, telling the, uh, the, the fire crew basically how fast can you cut open a trailer? Uh, and their, their sort of response was, well, how long do, uh, how long have we got? And for all of those other vets out there and everyone, we all know that it's kind of like you need to top up ketamine quite quickly and everything if you want to keep something anesthetizing. But ideally, you want to do it in as less uh, doses as possible. Uh, so I said, look, nine minutes. Can you cut this thing open in nine minutes? You've never seen a crew dismantle a trailer so fast. Hats off to them. They were absolutely fantastic. Literally in the space of probably five minutes, they opened that thing like a tin can. And we slid those two horses out on drag mats and recovered two horses from anesthesia in the middle of the motorway, skipping around like Bambi on ice. But unbeknown to me, on the other side of the motorway, over the hedge line, was a load of paparazzi from the local paper that had caught wind that something had gone wrong on the motorway. So therefore I had... Everyone staring at me with regards to two or three fire crews, loads of police, and you've got paparazzi stepping over the side of a fence, and you've got everyone slowing down coming on the other side of the motorway. Could you imagine the stress and everything going through your head? And again, uni never prepares you for, for any of this, but it will always stick with me. Being driven down a motorway by the police, parting the ways, recovering horses on motorways, there's not a single job like it. And anyone who is out there and thinking about becoming an equine vet, it could quite possibly happen to you. And there have been multiple times where I've been called out by uh, the fire crews. Um, I've helped fish horses out of ditches, cattle grids, uh, and even swimming pools. Um, and I think every vet out there will always have one of those stories where they've managed to fish something out upside down in the most inappropriate places. So uh, I think I'll finish there for this one and hopefully you'll join us on the next episode. Thank you, Rick. Next week, Rick will be back to talk about the power of a power nap in a vet's life. I'll be chatting to Cobb specialist Val Sheehan about all things Cobbs, including training, finding and producing Cobbs for the show ring. And we'll review all the action from the Hickstead Derby, as well as catching up on the week's news as normal. Thank you for listening to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this week by Amerigo and their UK distributor, Zebra. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.